New Orleans has always been a city obsessed with food. If a New Orleanian is talking about anything involving daily life, it's going to be about the details of what you're eating and how you're eating it and who you're eating it with and where and why. And so 10 years ago, when Hurricane Katrina and the ensuing floods devastated the city, Food was a pretty good lens for thinking about what happened. The ways in which we eat together, come together, cook food, what we could cook, what we couldn't cook. It was just such a huge part of how things had changed for us. And how they've continued to change since. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, an hour of food stories to mark the 10-year anniversary of Katrina. 10 years ago, New Orleans, the city I live in, was undone by Hurricane Katrina and the flooding from the federal levee failures that followed it. It's an event that has remade this place in both visible and less visible ways. Uh, It is weird because it's a new city, but it looks the same. (laughs) That's Clifton Harris, who would know. He grew up here, has lived here his whole life. We'll get back to him in a minute. This hour, we'll be thinking about the new and old tastes of this food-obsessed city, how food shows us what happened in New Orleans post-Katrina, and how it's changed since then. But before we can get to what's going on now, we have to go back. Not to the storm itself, but what it was like just after the storm. I'm, I'm like the full-fledged Katrina victim. You know, I lost a family member, a pet, a house, a car. You know, my family was displaced. The majority of my relatives stayed in other cities. You know, I could truly say that my entire life changed. Totally. Because I was a medical student, I had this medical school ID that sort of looked official in some kind of a way, and I was able to get back into the city a lot sooner than most people were. And so we started doing healthcare work pretty much right right as soon as I got back. I found a map of all of the official neighborhoods of New Orleans. I think there were 72. And then I would sort of roll the dice every, every week and sort of pick a random number and say, I'm going to ride my bike to that neighborhood. I'm going to see what I see. I'm going to try to have something to drink and or eat, and I'm going to run my bike home. That was Clifton Harris, Catherine Jones, and an anonymous writer who goes by the name Swampish. They all kept blogs in the wake of the storm. Whether blogging from here in New Orleans amidst the destruction or in exile, their writing was an effort to try to make sense of what had happened to their city. And food was a constant theme in what they wrote. Their blog posts are part of a new collection edited by Cynthia Joyce, who was a journalist in New Orleans for years. The book is called Please Forward. It viscerally captures what the aftermath of the storm was like through blog entries. Here, in their own words and voices, are some of those stories. October 12th, 2005. Well, I guess Mississippi isn't so bad. We have found an apartment right outside of Jackson and have finally told ourselves we would be here for at least six months. The apartment area is nice enough to be relaxed to the point that six months should fly on by. Lots of people I spoke with the first week after Katrina said there was no way they would ever return. I myself said out loud that I wasn't going back. Now it's been a month and a half and I can sense the homesickness in a lot of their voices. Now, this doesn't mean that I expect everybody to pack up their new lives and go back to the swamp. That won't happen. 
What I am saying is that no one will ever get closure from this storm. I thought going home to see my house in the city would give me some closure and knowing everything was gone. It only made matters worse. I'm going to give you a few reasons why we would never have closure. How can you really just walk away and not even be concerned about what's going on? You always feel the need to see what's going on with the rebuilding and recovery. We all really want to know if rich people are going to come in and take over our neighborhoods. We all want to know what it's going to look like and who's going to live where we played in the street. If they do take over the places we called home forever, we will all be angry, no matter if it's 10 months or 10 years from now. The rest of America has never caught on to a culinary wonder that is Patton's hot sausage. I feel like a fiend looking around every grocery store in Mississippi for Patton's or D&D. There won't be any Patton's for a while since it was under 10 feet of water in the lower night ward. This is truly dark days for me and my stomach. Even if you have never moved back, you know you have to go home for at least a hot sausage poor boy with cheese. These other places are cool and normal, but New Orleans is different and odd. It's the kind of place you either have a feeling for or you can't live there. My dad always says New Orleans should have been its own country. If you were born, raised, and have been living in New Orleans for more than 20 years, that will stick with you forever. There can be no closure because the lifestyle and attitude of the city is who you are. You can't get closure from yourself. We all products of Cool Can, Humpty Head, Frozen Cups, Tambourine and Fan, Wild Magnolias, Soul Rebels, Hot 8, Rebirth, Gumbo, Red Beans on Monday, Crawfish Balls on Mother's Day, Super Sunday, Claiborne and Orleans on Mardi Gras, Shakespeare Park, Circle Food Store, and like my friend Nisha would say, sitting on a porch talking about nothing. That's who we are. The storm can't kill that. Even turning our shotgun doubles in the townhouses can't kill it. It's in your heart and your personality. Don't look for closure. Look for your own personal peace and spirit and adjust to your new life. Trying to get closure from something that is part of you will only make you sad. November 23rd, 2005. The Love and the Recipes. Yesterday, I got back from Washington, D.C. It was the first time I'd left Louisiana since I'd returned here about five days after the storm. I was strangely apprehensive about leaving. I know this storm has made us weird down here. I'm used to people cooking huge pots of red beans for strangers on the neutral ground. I'm not used to eight different kinds of toothpaste in Walgreens. What would it mean for me, I wondered, to go to a place where people take the subway to work and don't talk to each other, and then go home, or maybe stop for groceries or a beer on the way? Could I function in a place that wasn't so marked as we are here by such deep collective grief? I decided to take a train, partially because it was so much cheaper than flying, and partially because I wanted to look out a window for 24 hours and watch the land change. I had all these visions of myself, sitting alone on a train, gazing out of a window for hours and hours, not doing anything, not thinking anything. I knew it would be exactly what I needed. Here's what really happened on the train. 20 minutes after pulling out of New Orleans, my whole car started talking. Everybody. About the storm, obviously. It's become a sort of dysfunctional security blanket for us. 
It gives us definition and purpose. We don't go anywhere without it, tucked, barely visible, into our back pockets. But not only about the storm, and not only about houses, jobs, relatives, schools. Not only about jail and being evicted and not being able to find the doctor. No, not only about those things. We talked about grandparents, holidays, the games we used to play as kids. We talked about cooking for about three hours. We got into arguments about how long it takes to learn how to make good red beans. A 23-year-old cook was going back to Pittsburgh, where his fiance and three-week-old son were waiting for him. He'd found a job in a Pittsburgh restaurant, where he'd convinced them to let him cook real New Orleans food. Now the restaurant is making all kinds of money. Yes, indeed, the 90-year-old great-aunt across the aisle kept saying. Yes, indeed, but I bet it's cold up there. Baby, it's cold everywhere, the old man said in front of her, buried in his jacket. Then I started speaking in Spanish with a construction worker from Panama. He had gotten on the train with paint still drying on his clothes. He was going up to Atlanta to get his truck and his five roommates to come down here to work. After that, all the Spanish speakers on the train made a little corner in the lounge car. Deep into the night, we drank hot chocolate and talked about food and kids and immigration policy and how to fix cars. No alone time on that train. That was okay. Privacy might be nice sometime, but I guess now's the time for us to be together. This is what's happening to me now, I thought, surrounded on that train by so many beautiful people. I am so, so grateful. October 4th, 2006. So far, my weekly treks haven't exactly been uplifting experiences. The luck of the draw has sent me to or through some of the worst suffering neighborhoods in the city. Now, that either says something about the extent of the damage and the lack of progress, or it says something about my luck. For the most part, the Desire neighborhood lacked even the smiles and waves I had seen from FEMA trailer residents in the St. Bernard area. It even lacked the FEMA trailers. But then, at the end of a block, I happened upon a cluster of six houses, all either repaired or undergoing repairs, four of them with FEMA trailers in the yard. I stopped to chat with one of the residents, who was waxing his pristine red pickup. Oh, we're coming back, he assured me. And he ticked off the names of each of his neighbors who was back, pointing out that nearly every house on his block had already been gutted. They're just waiting on the money, you know. It's slow, but they're coming. By this time next year, I think we'll all be back. There were three houses on the block too damaged to be repaired. Those, he assured me, would be torn down and rebuilt. Beside the row of repaired houses across the street was one still abandoned. On the plywood that still covered the front window, someone had spray-painted, Do not bulldoze, Mr. President. Apparently they ran out of space, but we get the message. Down on St. Claude, I decided to lift my spirits by enjoying one of the undeniable benefits Katrina's wake has brought us, the taco trucks. If you live in the Southwest, you're already privy to the wonders of the taco truck but they are a new emergence on the culinary scene of New Orleans, arriving with the waves of Hispanic workers who are doing the lion's share of the gutting and roofing and sheetrocking around town. These rolling restaurants, portable taquerias and delivery trucks have set up shop on the parking lots of gas stations and building material suppliers, like a spicy version of the ice cream man. My nearest truck is Taqueria La Casuelas. I was mentally practicing to order in Spanish until the grandmotherly proprietor greeted me with, How are you tonight? Watching her prepare my tacos, I was struck by the care she showed. 
lime wedges cut on the spot, shredded lettuce artfully arranged, sauce and salt containers set in counterbalance to the two lime wedges, the plate carefully wrapped in aluminum foil. It was the antithesis of the distracted, rushed, slightly annoyed manner of the typical fast food worker. The tacos were first rate, and the sauce, an edgy burn around the lips, lent character and nuance by cilantro and tomatoes chopped infinitely fine. That sauce is calling me back as I write this. Oh, Madonna of the Casuelas, Our Lady of the Double Tortilla, wield your saucepan of mercy and dispense the balm of your chopped cilantro. Fortify your faithful that they may vanquish the night of the blue roof and intercede for us with your patron who has granted us your vision as a sign of our renewal. Amen. That was in order Clifton Harris, Catherine Jones, and Swampish. Each of these bloggers, when they sat down to read with me, got choked up when we started. It's no surprise. Their writing brought back the feelings of the storm's aftermath. And many have had to work hard to separate themselves from those emotions in the 10 years since Katrina. That's a battle still not entirely over. I'm not angry. And if I was, I wouldn't really know who to take my anger out on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, who are you, who are you actually angry with? Let's just drive you crazy. That's Clifton Harris again. By many measures, New Orleans is thriving. Its sales tax revenue in the first few months of last year was 22% higher than the same period pre-storm in 2005. Its population is growing, new buildings abound, and it's not like Cliff doesn't want to celebrate that. Who wants to soak all the time? You know, how are you going to get people to move here and invest in a city and everything if you just keep stressing the depressing parts of... Uh, our history all the time. So I understand it from their point of view. It's just personally, I think it would be a little better to to deal with if I felt like there were a lot of people who were here prior to the storm that were really reaping the benefits of the changes. Coming up, who is reaping the benefits of the changes in New Orleans post-Katrina? the stories of two different restaurants that give us some insight. That's ahead. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey. And there is that donor music. Hurricane Katrina scattered New Orleans residents across the country. They missed family and the city's music and beloved foods, especially beloved foods. During those post-Katrina days, Monday red bean suppers proved more than meals— 
Red beans and rice served as a reminder of home. Camellia red beans simmered on stovetops in Houston, in Seattle, in San Francisco, in Atlanta. They proved the most important kind of comfort food. They warmed kitchens and filled bellies and soothed nerves. Camellia red beans have been a staple in New Orleans kitchens since the Hayward Family Company began packaging them in the 1940s. Seasoned with the holy trinity of onion, bell pepper, and celery, fortified with sausage, Camellia red beans are a signature food of New Orleans, no matter where they're cooked and savored. You can find them online at CamelliaBrand.com. That is Camellia with two L's. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini. A few months ago, I joined a funeral procession in my neighborhood of New Orleans for a guy named Chris Rudge. He owned a restaurant called Bacchanal. The story of that restaurant gives us a little window into how New Orleans has changed and is changing since Hurricane Katrina. Writer Sarah Rowan was a professional friend of Chris Rudge's, and she brings us this story. People reveal themselves in crisis. At the time of Hurricane Katrina, Chris Rudge owned a small, sleepy wine shop appropriately called Bacchanal. He had opened it a few years prior in an ancient building on a far corner of New Orleans in the Bywater neighborhood, downriver from the French Quarter. I had my microphone with me this past March at a memorial repast that his family and colleagues held for Chris in Bacchanal's back courtyard. One of Chris's longtime friends and employees, Eric Corvo, pulled me aside to tell me his ultimate Chris Rudge story. Eric didn't evacuate for Hurricane Katrina, so he was able to check on the wine shop after the storm and let Chris know how it had made out. Picked up the phone, called him. I was like, hey man, just want to let you know front doors kicked in, it took all the cheese, and they took a bunch of bottles of wine. And his response was, oh, at least they were fed and drunk. That's Chris Rudge. Chris returned from his evacuation shortly after the hurricane and the failures of the federal levy system flooded roughly 80% of the city. Bywater is located in the narrow sliver of land closest to the Mississippi River that didn't flood. There wasn't a huge market for Chris's specialty, small batch, European-style wines, during the immediate post-Katrina era. But there was much need for connection, camaraderie, and commiseration, and certainly for alcohol. Places reveal themselves in crisis, too, and Bacchanal rose to the occasion. Christine Gladney remembers. She moved here right after Katrina. And I met Chris when he was living in a FEMA trailer here, because the roof had blown off of his place. You know, it was all sort of messed up after Katrina, but this was like the meeting place of all of our friends. I met so many dear friends here, and then we would all meet here because you knew, you know? You just went to Bacchanal, you'd see all your buddies. Chris's passing was a tough truth to accept. He died unexpectedly in his sleep at home about eight months after turning 40. Chris built something pretty spectacular at Bacchanal before he died. He did it with just a smidgen of calculation, a little instinct, and a lot of love. The love of wine and the love of his Bywater neighborhood. I appreciate Chris's story and the story of his little wine shop that could for many reasons. One of them is that Bacchanal gives some focus to a larger, blurrier post-Katrina story of change and gentrification in one New Orleans neighborhood. To begin the investigation, we should back up a few decades. 
Sammy Bayamonte is the proprietor, head cook, and all-around worker bee at Jack Dempsey's, a traditional New Orleans neighborhood restaurant just a few blocks up Poland Avenue from Bacchanal. Jack Dempsey's is known for its preparations of Gulf seafood, nearly all of which appear on the super seafood platter. You get shrimp, you get oysters, catfish, some plies have redfish, uh, you get stuffed crab balls, you get uh, crawfish pie, you get a cup of gumbo with it, you get your money's worth. Around the turn of the last century, many thousands of Sicilians immigrated to New Orleans. Sammy's paternal grandfather was in that number. The Bayamantes have deep roots in Bywater. Sammy's memories here read like a map of the area. My father was born and raised on Poland Avenue. My mother was raised on Royal Street, and that's where I was raised at on Royal Street. And my wife's family was raised right here in the neighborhood also. My wife's from Poland Avenue. Everything you need was right here in this area at one time. There was, the, there was clothing stores on St. Claude. There was, there was other restaurants on St. Claude. Um, there were schools right there on Alvo and, and St. Claude. So we didn't have to go far for those things. We went to church right over here at St. Cecilia. When Sammy was a kid, the building where Bacchanal is now was a home. He remembers playing with one of his classmates in the backyard there. Sammy's mother and stepfather bought Jack Dempsey's around 1980 when he was a teenager. And they turned it from a barroom and sandwich shop into the restaurant it is today. Business has remained strong enough to keep the restaurant running, but none of Sammy's family lives in Bywater anymore. Uh, that was in the early 90s. That's when things were kind of rough around here. Um, one night around midnight, my wife said she heard a noise. Look up, we'll look outside, and there's two men in my truck. <laughs> and, and then after that, that's when she didn't feel safe. We were raising a small child. My son was seven years old, probably. And, um, you know, they just didn't feel safe back in the days. And, um, Sammy moved his family to the suburbs after that incident. White flight happened in New Orleans like it did in dozens of other American cities. In the first half of the 20th century, Bywater was filled with white families with European immigrant roots, just like Sammy's. By 1980, droves of these families had left for the typical reasons. School integration, increasing crime rates, and urban decay. What's a little unique about Bywater, though, is that some affluent white professionals and bohemians made their way into the neighborhood after this. Some middle-class African-Americans, too. But it's not like Bywater suddenly got gussied up. Until very recently, it was a solidly working-class residential neighborhood with corner stores, beer bars, and a lot of blight. I've lived on the other side of the French Quarter, in uptown New Orleans, for almost 15 years. In my time here, Bywater has always had loyalists, many of whom, like me, were transplants to the city. Chris Rudge was one of them. He grew up in Florida. Before Chris died, I was working with him on a book project. One afternoon last fall, we met in the courtyard at Bacchanal for an interview. We talked a lot about the early days at his wine shop. It actually opened in February of 2002 is when I finally opened the doors and said, here's my 30 whites and 30 reds and a couple of sparklings and rosés by water. Do you want some? <laughs> Bacchanal remained a small operation for the next few years. The entire retail business was contained in one brick-walled room that got almost no natural light. It was fun there because Chris was fun. He earned the nickname Bacchus, honestly. There were free Saturday afternoon wine tastings, which got lively. But every other day, Bacchanal was a mellow contribution to a section of the city that Chris described as neighborhoody. Chris had a fiercely democratic spirit, and Bacchanal's clientele in the beginning was anyone who wanted to be there. Anyone with a need Chris could fulfill, whether that was a bottle of burgundy, a game of chess, or something else. Again, 
Here's Chris. I had a gentleman that lived in this apartment complex over here. He was partially crippled, so he always walked with a limp. And he liked bush light in a tall can. And he had to walk all the way down, like three blocks to the next corner store to buy his bush light in a tall can. So I would uh, stock it for him so he could walk right next door and buy it. I asked him whether that man was still around. No, he moved away after Katrina. We have not heard from him since. Not a kind of dude that would be carrying a cell phone or keeping in touch. <laughs> Who knows what happened to that man? Chris couldn't even remember his full name. You have to be careful when talking about cause and effect in regards to Hurricane Katrina and the levee breaks. For example, it would be irresponsible to say that the storm and flooding directly caused Bacchanal and its surrounding neighborhood to change in tandem. But even if Katrina didn't directly cause change, it was a tipping point. And while the neighborhood took some time to gentrify, changes at Bacchanal happened almost immediately. For one, Bo Ross moved next door to Bacchanal. Bo and Chris met in the dorms at Florida State and moved to New Orleans around the same time. Bo began working at Bacchanal after Katrina, in part because it was a happy place to be in a town full of hurt. When I came back after Katrina with that newfound sense of like, oh shit, this is the only place in America for me and I gotta get involved. And that was almost immediately when I started to like work my way into the place here. Chris eventually made Bo a business partner. Bo says that shortly after he started working there, Chris got in touch with his own former boss, Peter Vazquez, who owned Marisol Restaurant in the Marini neighborhood. Marisol is where Chris had begun to learn about wine. Chef Peter couldn't open his restaurant up again after Katrina due to insurance issues. And Chris heard that Chef was, uh, Pete was cooking on the streets of Algiers and his, um, he'd rigged up not a food truck in the traditional sense, it was just his truck. And that gave Chris an idea. He called Pete and suggested he park his truck at Bacchanal on Sundays. They already had wine and live music. Food would round out the party. The backyard at Bacchanal was a jungle of plant growth and junk when Chris first opened. As business had grown and more and more customers wanted to hang around and drink, Chris had slowly made it habitable back there, which made it possible for these post-Katrina Sundays at Bacchanal to become a thing. You know, the word spread about these magical Sundays, and it was a lot of people you know, with a lot of Katrina hurt, a lot of baggage, coming together and having this magical little garden party. And it, I think for a lot of people, it made them believe again. It made them believe in recovery. Pop-up wasn't a term used back then, but that's essentially what Bacchanal started hosting. First with Chef Peter, and then a rotation of guest chefs. It was during this time that Joaquin Rodas came on the scene. Joaquin owned a tapas bar nearby called Upstairs at Mimi's. He was blown away by the food Chef Peter was serving from the back of a truck. He did these puff pastries with blood sausage and a Rioja reduction sauce in the puff pastry. He did that off a grill in a backyard. Joaquin became a guest chef too. This moment at Bacchanal was pivotal for the new New Orleans culinary scene. Many of the guest chefs went on to open restaurants, all of them respectful of New Orleans cooking traditions while paving a new way. Bo is proud of that connection. I like to think that Bacchanal Sundays inspired a lot of people to uh, seize the reins and open their own places and experiment and, and do something you know, funky and in the spirit of the neighborhood. 
Joaquin became Bacchanal's first executive chef in 2010 and later a partner in the business. Chris had a proper outdoor kitchen built for him. In some ways, those were the best of times. Joaquin enjoyed the challenge of cooking almost exclusively on the grill and Bo liked the outdoor kitchen too. That outdoor cooking where people coming and going are interacting with that process and they're sending a shout out to the chefs at work and they're able to you know, compliment the guys as they're actually making the food and I wish we could have kept that part. They couldn't keep that part because it's basically impossible to make an outdoor kitchen up to code. It's at this point, as I see it, when Bywater Bohemia and Bacchanal Bohemia begin to end concurrently. It wasn't the first time that Chris had to rearrange his business style to comply with the law. He'd had to upgrade from a retail license to a bar license in the early days. He'd had to stop paying people in cash and wine. And he'd had to replace a toaster that kept catching fire with a George Foreman grill. It was always seat of pants until like the last maybe two or three years. The last two or three years includes what people refer to as the night the music died at Bacchanal. As the Bacchanal guys tell it, a newcomer to New Orleans and to Bywater lodged a complaint with the city about loud music at Bacchanal. The subtext here is that the interloper didn't understand or appreciate the city's spontaneous, celebratory ways. That person eventually moved away, but not before his complaint forced Bacchanal to a new level of maturity. Chris and his partners had to address many different violations at City Hall before they could resume all operations on the up and up. Being on the right side of the line put Bacchanal on a straight path to where it is today. Live music and fine dining quality foods seven nights a week, a general manager, weekly meetings with a business consultant. But let me put this in perspective. You still buy your bottled wine in the wine room, where you also grab your own glasses from dishwasher racks. You order your food at a window cut into the kitchen out back. The chairs outside are mismatched, the tables are tippy. Bacchanal's fans count these quirks among its charms. I find the lack of waiters and waitresses to be the core of Bacchanal's spirit. When no one ever hands you a bill, you're never asked to leave. It's truly a backyard party. But none of that fully explains the magic. The reason why Bacchanal is one of the first places I think to bring out-of-town visitors, to give them a taste of New Orleans distilled. Bo agrees. Whatever's been going on here has been funky for a long fucking time, really. I don't want to get all woo-woo, but I do think that there's a really strong possibility that this, this has been a site of a lot of human interaction at its it's most wanton and it's most free-spirited for a long time. You know, even I don't get it sometimes. I'm like, especially I'll come out here in the daytime, I'm like, this is a dirty backyard, you know? So Bacchanal today is as grown up as it's ever been. Its clientele has expanded to include college students from uptown and also tourists and celebrities. This, says Joel Dinnerstein, signals the death of Bacchanal as a cool place. Joel is the director of the New Orleans Center of the Gulf South at Tulane University. As the author of a book called American Cool, he's an expert on that complex, loaded word. A friend introduced Joel to Bacchanal before Hurricane Katrina. On one of his first visits, he saw this woman. Who was offering haircuts for $5. And she had tattoos up from her ankle all the way up the inside of her leg. And I needed a haircut. 
and I figured, what did I care? It was five bucks. And I got a pretty decent haircut while the music played and we all hang around and people did whatever they were doing. Back then, Joel says, this sort of uncultivated, accidental cool at Bacchanal was something that only hip people knew about. Not hipsters, which has become a pejorative term, but hip people in the old-school, groovy, jazz musician sense of the word. Ironically, according to Joel, Bacchanal fell off the cool map at the same post-Katrina time when New Orleans became a cool city in the national imagination. Bacchanal fell off the cool map in some ways because New Orleans became a cool city. Both of them got discovered. I asked Joel, what is a cool city? There are innovative arts scenes going on there. There has to be diversity, a range of people. And it ha there has to be a certain edge and riskiness to living there. Areas in which, for lack of better terms, cool things are happening are often going to be areas that are, in fact, full of tensions among the peoples who live there. Either they are gentrifying, or it's a neighborhood that has been, in fact, edgy or sometimes low-income. Bywater certainly had that edge and riskiness. Chef Joaquin remembers how his service industry friends who lived in Bywater pre-Katrina would keep a $20 bill in their front pockets to pull out when they got robbed, because they would get robbed. They hid the rest of their cash tips in their shoes. Joaquin told me about one evening when the new Bywater hit him over the head. He was driving to Bacchanal on Charter Street, hoping to speed unnoticed as usual, and instead, he got stuck behind a line of cars going 10 miles per hour. Finally get to see what in the hell it is that's causing the traffic, and it's this girl in really tight, short, like little shorts, rollerblading, down Charter Street, swinging her arms as wide as she can, you know, just like going for the gold medal, you know? And she's got this little tiny bikini top, and I mean, this is a dusk in Bywater, you know? And I'm like, and I thought, I thought to myself, this neighborhood's changed so much. Didn't even have a front pocket to put $20 in. It goes without saying that in any gentrifying neighborhood, it's the most economically challenged people who get pushed out. And in the New Orleans metro area, African-American households earned 50% less than white households in 2011, according to the Greater New Orleans Community Data Center. But Bywater gentrification isn't just a black and white issue. The neighborhood has always been a mix of working class people. In the past few decades, that has included Bohemians, lower-income creatives of all races. And Joel Dinnerstein says it's Bywater's bohemian qualities that could have predicted its changing. Places can't stay cool anymore because, as one of my friends said, I'm not sure if bohemians are good at cool, but they're really, really good at real estate. And that is a quote to live on. It's like, I'm not saying that they were always about real estate. I'm just saying if you're a realtor, you should follow the bohemians. Robin Helverson was a bohemian forerunner in Bywater when she moved there in the 1970s after rents in the French Quarter got too expensive. She bought her first house for $18,000. It's on Poland Avenue, just two blocks from where Bacchanal is now. She says it would sell for at least $450,000 today. And she would know. Along with owning a couple of popular Bywater businesses, 
Robin is a real estate agent. She has mixed reactions to what has been happening in her neighborhood. And of course, the thing that always made Bywater interesting was that it was full of artists and musicians. And it was always a challenge to me to find a, a musician that thought they couldn't buy a house and figure out some kind of creative financing or, you know, help them in some way and then all of a sudden they had a house. And that can't really happen in Bywater anymore. It's not as much fun to just take someone out and you tell them, well, this thing is priced right, there are going to be multiple offers, you better get an offer in immediately and it better be full price and you better make it as clean as possible. Robin anticipated Bywater's rise and appeal. It's a neighborhood close to the French Quarter that didn't flood where crime has been dwindling. But she sometimes can't even trust her own real estate instincts anymore. There was a house on her block that she didn't think would sell because the renovation wasn't up to par. She toured the house with some other real estate agents and they reached consensus. Nobody's going to pay over 500000 and it's going to sit there and they're going to learn. Well, a couple months later, somebody from New York who's a writer came in and spent 525000 and bought the place and is living there now. So what do I know? Ten years after Hurricane Katrina, it's still impossible to see clearly all the ways the city has changed forever. I asked everyone I interviewed for this story about the connection between gentrification at Bacchanal and in Bywater. Did they think Bacchanal's evolution instigated neighborhood change, or did changes to the neighborhood inspire Bacchanal? I knew these were unfair questions, that it was a little bit of both and a lot of neither. But something that Bo told me about Chris's relationship to Bywater did make me think that Chris got something about the direction Bywater was headed long before most of us did, long before Cool did. He believed in the neighborhood big time, and you know he was right. I think that's something that should definitely be a part of the record is that Chris doubled down on the Bywater before pretty much you know, anybody as far for this particular kind of thing, you know, wine in, in this neighborhood, that was a bigger kind of double down because that implies a kind of bougie, aspirational kind of thing that didn't exist at all. So, but he knew from the get-go that he could bring a different approach to wine that would resonate with the neighborhood. Is Bywater still the neighborhood Chris loved? Talking to Joel Dinnerstein depressed me more than a little bit. Gentrification tends to do that to the people who are lucky to have been there first. Even when you remind yourself that change is natural and sometimes even for the better. At one point I asked Joel whether he thought gentrification here was stoppable or reversible. Not without another catastrophe, he said, and no one hopes for that. If I'm gonna hope for something, I'm gonna hope for a new urban model for how you actually conserve a city's best culture. I don't know how that would happen, but that's what I'm going to hope for. Bacchanal might not be cool anymore in Joel's sense of the word, but I still love hanging out there when I can get a seat. And I don't think about Katrina or gentrification or Bywater real estate when I'm there either. On Monday nights, for example, with a cheese board on the table, rosé in my glass, Helen Gillet on the electric cello, and yard lights twinkling above, it's all about the now. The bywater of now was present at Chris's funeral second line. All of it. The women wearing black corsets and horsetails who pulled the rickshaw hearse. 
Bacchanal's 90-something-year-old neighbor who once fought for Bacchanal's survival at City Hall, the stiletto heels and the mohawks, the jazz fest shirts and the wingtips, the sundresses, the babies carried by daddies and slings, and the silver brocade jackets. It felt like an appropriate mishmash of people and cultures. Traditional New Orleans funeral dirges tapped and blown through the new bywater for someone who invested in the neighborhood he loved and also managed to roll with the change there. Coming up, famous fried chicken and whether a restaurant's post-Katrina resurrection is more complicated than it seems. That's ahead. There is that donor music again, and I'm a little bit jealous of that outdoor kitchen at Bacchanal, and of many chefs' kitchens. But we mortals don't have easy access to a restaurant kitchen. What we do have access to is the full Lodge manufacturing catalog. From their headquarters in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, Lodge produces a whole range of cookware, from skillets to enameled cast iron casseroles to seasoned steel griddles. They also make grillware, If you cook with charcoal, Lodge makes a chimney starter. If you're working on the perfect charred pizza crust, there's a Lodge cast iron baking pan. For hamburgers, Lodge makes a heavy duty spatula. And for barbecue fans, they make a cast iron saucepan for the grill top. You can get everything you need from Lodge, except for the grill itself. Look online at lodgemfg.com. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini. This next story is a bit introspective, a bit about us. Ten years ago, the Southern Foodways Alliance set out not to document the story of a restaurant, but to save one. It spent 14 months in New Orleans rebuilding Willie Mae's Scotch House, a neighborhood hole-in-the-wall notable for its fried chicken and for its owner, Willie Mae Seaton, 89 years old at the time. What happens when a group of outsiders save a place and bring national attention to it? As reporter Keith O'Brien found, it's complicated. Life at the corner of Tonti and St. Anne Streets in the Treme hasn't changed much since 1957. Every morning it begins the same way, with chicken, up to 400 pounds of raw chicken. Most people don't, don't fry that much chicken, except Popeyes or the bigger companies, but you know, that's what we do, we sell chicken. So people come for the chicken, we gotta have it. We never run out, <laughs> never run out. Mike Stewart likes to buy it fresh every day. He's been working here for five years. I go run in the store, I go get my own supplies, my own food every day. He brings it back to Willie Mae's Scotch House and gets to work. I do all the seasoning of all the beans and the, um, the food, so that's part of my day, and then make the batter. There's a lot of it. I see, I usually use about... 36 quarts, he figures. And he'll tell you everything about the batter. The best temperature for the water, the importance of keeping it cold, and the value of using an electric mixer over a handheld whisk. Just don't ask him what's in it. Now, I'm going to get it started, but I might have to actually leave for a second because it still is a secret. <laughs> but I, I will call you back in before I start mixing it, okay? Willie Mae's Scotch House has good reason to protect its fried chicken recipe. The restaurant's menus declare it America's best. Many critics agree, and that's at least partially why the Southern Foodways Alliance decided to help out after Hurricane Katrina flooded the restaurant, displaced its aging owner, and left many wondering if Willie Mae Seaton would ever return. She had no means, she had no way, she had no possibilities. And here comes Southern Foodways, 
like like the cavalry and brought back one of the best institutions New Orleans had. Kern Reese isn't just a local. I am currently the chief judge of civil district court for the parish of Orleans in New Orleans, Louisiana. And he's been a regular at Willie Mays for years. 38 years. Like four decades. Yeah, that's, that's about right. But the tale of Willie Mays isn't as simple as Reese tells it, or as the media spun it at the time. Everyone loves a good story about the cavalry coming. But what happens after the cavalry leaves? In the case of Willie Mays, the answer is this. The tourists started showing up in droves. You have a choice of the butter beans, the red beans, the macaroni and cheese, sweet potato fries, french fries, the butter beans. Would you like some cornbread with that? The beauty of Willie Mays, both before the storm and today, is its simplicity. There's no pretense here, no culinary conceit. From the beginning, that was part of the draw. Again, Kern Reese. When you're sitting in court and you're waiting your turn, lawyers talk. And we talk about the judges. We talk about legal issues. We talk a little politics. And we talk about where we're going to get lunch. And uh, one of the regular places named the discussion was Willie Mays. This was back in 1977 or 78. That's when I first got there. And it was Miss Willie May and her brother Slim. And Slim had to be one of the worst waiters I've ever seen. He'd forget the orders, put the wrong plates in front of the wrong person. But it gradually worked out. And then once you got your plate, you were in heaven, so you didn't care. The food was that good. And there was always a lot of chatter. And people would talk across the room even sometimes times, and it wasn't out of place to do that. Because everyone knew everyone, black middle class and white middle class sitting together. There was your state representative two tables over. There was your city councilman by the door, or the undertaker from down the block. And you wanted to find out who passed, and you know, just you catch up on the news of the community. You know, it's just one of those places like barbershops and beauty parlors and Willie Mays restaurant. Yet it was, for the most part, a secret one of those hidden gems that makes New Orleans feel almost magical. Then a few months before Katrina, Willie Mays started getting the recognition it deserved. Today, after being named as the winner of the American Classic Award, people came from all over to find the place. The James Beard Foundation was honoring Willie Mays Scotch House with one of its annual awards, the food equivalent of an Oscar. And on stage, accepting that award a few weeks later, Willie May, a waif of a woman, broke down crying. Here she is talking about it in an interview from the time. They say I made the best speech of the night because it came from my heart, and it did. It come from my heart, baby. All of this made Willie Mays important under any circumstances by 2005. And then came August that year. The water, the wind, the news. Here's some of the numbers. Pascagoula, Mississippi, a gust to 118. Gulfport, gust to 100. And New Orleans lakefront, Augusta, 86 miles per hour. Boy, things are going downhill in a hurry out there. Willie Mae Seaton was worried about Katrina. Her entire family was. We all evacuated together to Shreveport. That's Carrie Seaton Stewart. I'm Willie Mae's great-granddaughter. Carrie remembers caravanning north, and then together just watching as the levees breached, flooding the Treme, Willie Mae's restaurant, her whole life. She was watching the TV, and seeing the people scream for help and everything, and she still wanted to get to her place. And I was like, Grandma, the UC is underwater. About six feet of it. Willie Mae couldn't get back for months. And by the time she did... I think she came back in November. She did so without telling her family. Just flew to New Orleans from Houston, took a cab to her restaurant, and was found soon thereafter sitting on the street like a homeless person, with one exception, 
Willie Mae's James Beard medal was carefully wrapped inside her purse. The Beard Foundation soon got word. And Beard wrote me and said, could this be true? Could this be real? Could it be that Willie Mae Seaton, the winner of our America's Classics Award the previous year, was found homeless on the street corner in front of her restaurant? And we wrote back quickly, why, yes, that is possible. John T. Edge is director of the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi, which, among other things, produces this podcast. He doesn't rebuild restaurants or anything else. I'm an academic geek. I'm not, um, I'm not a building contractor. I'm not an architect. But Edge felt like the SFA had to do something. The notion that you could help on one corner, that you could help one business, that you could help one person, was graspable. And in many ways, I think that the notion of, okay, we can help Willie Mae Seton was a bomb for many people who cared so deeply about the city. They had some contractors behind them. A Colorado-based nonprofit that isolated Willie Mays as a potential rebuild. With their help, Southern Foodway staffers figured it was an eight-week job. Then in February 2006, they saw the restaurant for the first time. It smelled moldy and sour. I was stunned at the dirt. That's Mary Beth Lassiter. And I am the Associate Director of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Basically, she says, the restaurant was a mess. There was so much filth in that place because the water had just taken it over. And, and I just thought, oh my God, I have no idea what we're going to do with this place. It was overwhelming. And it got worse. The contractors quickly backed out. They bail. They completely leave the project. And suddenly, the Southern Foodways Alliance volunteers were alone with a ruined restaurant in a broken city with an 89-year-old woman counting on them for help and greeting them at the door with hugs. Come on here. Come on, baby. All right. Hey, honey. Oh, baby, where you been? It was time to raise money. People like Morgan Freeman stepped in. Um, people like John Grisham stepped in. And so did everyday believers in fried chicken and the possibilities of New Orleans at $200 a pop. And that added up by the end to a quarter million dollars. A lot of money and a lot of work, led by Mississippi chef and New Orleans native John Currents. The, the condition of the building was just deplorable. And, you know, and it was actually only by the grace of God that the building was standing. I mean, there's no physical reason that it had not completely fallen over. An eight-week job dragged on for six months, a year, even longer, until Currents became fixated on a new worry. We could very well finish this project and turn over the keys and a for sale sign could get slapped up on the side of it. Willie Mae Seaton, the reason for everything, was slipping away. In an interview with food writer Sarah Rowan in July 2006, you could hear it happening. Everybody asked me, when they look at me, say, oh my God, what happened to you? I said, baby, worry. Who says that? I look that? so indifferent, my customer. When they meet me, oh, mama, what happened to you? When they look at me, I say, baby, this pressure got me. I say, under pressure. Pressure will wear iron out. Pressure will wear an iron out? Yeah, pressure will wear the iron out. Honey, I tell you, know, never try to get under pressure because it's not a good feeling. That's what I'm under right now, a lot of pressure. Her deterioration was was clear. Again, John Currents. It was kind of like if you if you stare hard enough at a clock that you can you know you can watch the minute hand move. That's sort of 
how she sort of began to slip into delirium. By the time Willie Mae's Scotch House reopened in April 2007, 20 months after Hurricane Katrina, the restaurant was a media darling, thanks to the SFA. The Mississippi nonprofit sold pricey tickets to a fundraising gala, organized the reopening lunch, and released a documentary film on the project. Willie Mae's story was everywhere. But behind the scenes, the woman herself was struggling with dementia, gone, fading away. Family was squabbling. It was stressful for everyone, and I'm sure it was stressful for the family. On opening day, Carrie Seaton Stewart, Willie Mae's great-granddaughter, walked out. I left that day. I didn't want to deal with that anymore. The restaurant quickly closed, again, and Mary Beth Lassiter was worried. There were just so many unanswered questions. Who's going to be in charge if she's not going to be in the kitchen? Is it going to still be the Scotch House if Willie Mae's not frying the chicken? That was really the day when I thought, uh-oh, what's going to happen to this place? Within weeks, Willie Mae's family placed her in a nursing home. She would never return to the restaurant again. Carrie was in charge now, just 27 years old, and she didn't even want the job. But that spring, she got a phone call. The Food Network had heard about the rebuild and wanted to name Willie Mae's Fried Chicken the best in America. And Carrie made a choice. I said, oh my God, really? I guess I'm open up the place. I said, when you plan on coming in, I'll be ready for you when you come. And that's when the crowds started showing up. One tourist after another, after another for one thing. Uh, the world-renowned fried chicken <laughs> is what I was told. <laughs> I want some chicken. <laughs> On a recent Saturday, Adrian Baskin from Memphis stood in line outside Willie Mays next to a couple from Seattle who was just behind the bachelor party from Los Angeles and the high rollers from South Florida who claimed to be regulars. The wait to get in the door was nearly an hour, and Tiffany Gatsby didn't care, because she'd been hearing about Willie Mays for years from the biggest names in food. Uh, Anthony Bourdain and Food Network and every single food show that goes here. So we put that on our list. Got to check it off. The fact that a fried chicken joint in the Treme, a neighborhood once considered too rough for tourists, the fact that it would be on anyone's list is a testament to the work of the Southern Foodways Alliance and Carrie Seaton's efforts to continue her great-grandmother's legacy. Some say the food is better now than ever before. But much like New Orleans itself 10 years after the storm, Willie Mays is just different. And when iconic places change, it's hard to accept. Again, John T. Edge. In the same way that I have no right to have stepped into this, um, uh, to have stepped into Treme and thinking I could do good, I have no right to question what Willie Mays is today. Still, he can't help but wonder if maybe the SFA was too successful in telling Willie Mays' story. Because who does Willie Mays serve now? You know, who are the patrons? You know, I think about Willie Mays the first time I went there, and that restaurant was populated. It was three-quarters black, one-quarter white. It was, you know, full of construction workers, and it was full of neighborhood folk, and it was full of politicians who knew where to get a good meal. It was a neighborhood clubhouse, a bunkhouse, and now it's a tourist destination. Is that success? I don't know. But maybe it would have happened anyway. Willa Mays is actually a very interesting microcosm. That's Joel Dinnerstein, the Tulane professor we heard from earlier, who writes about what makes things cool. He's eaten at Willie Mays and isn't surprised that tourists like to eat there too. What Katrina did in the most ironic sense was rip open this 
contained idea of New Orleans as a party city for Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest in the French Quarter. And suddenly the rest of America and the world said, hey, there's a whole culture here I did not know about that is still alive. Like Second Lines and Mardi Gras Indians and fried chicken and the Treme, these things, once the domain primarily of African Americans, became interesting after the storm to white tourists from Ohio and California. And while that's made New Orleans a more relevant city, a more accessible city, and a more thriving city in many ways, Dinnerstein says it's also made the traditions at times less traditional. Willamay just becomes a place you go. It has an interesting story, it's fried chicken, you want to sort of participate in this larger sense of a Katrina narrative. I mean, there's just no, no, no one was going to have control over that. The fryers are always filled with chicken at Willie Mays these days. <laughs> Did you see the line outside? Mike Stewart, Carrie's husband, has to keep the customers moving. And Carrie doesn't apologize for the success they've had attracting tourists. That means they have to stay in a hotel, they're going to visit other things, they're going to spend money in New Orleans, and they're going to eat at Willie Mays. Last fall, Carrie even opened a second location in uptown New Orleans on majestic St. Charles Avenue, and she hasn't ruled out opening up others. But some things remain the same. Willie May is 99 years old. Saddled with dementia in that home, she doesn't do interviews anymore, but she's still alive. People still want their red beans on Monday, and even now, in the best of times, Carrie still remembers how hard it was reopening after Katrina. Every day, it was an obstacle. Every single day, it was just something, and sometimes I couldn't even fry chicken, so I had to just have all type of different specials. And, um, you know, the customers would just come to the kitchen and they would encourage me. And they would say, you know, everything was delicious and we'll be back and don't worry about it. You know, just stick with it. They still do that. All the time. And they wait, locals too, and those long lines for fried chicken in the rain, in the heat, all summer. There are legends about it now in New Orleans. You know, there's a good story. You've probably heard this. Dinnerstein says it happened when Willie Mays first reopened. There was a line, like a really long line, like an hour line. And this woman pulled up in a fancy car. Uh, an automobile that marked her wealth. She was rich. She was a truly cartoonishly obnoxious, wealthy woman. This is how the story goes, anyway. And she was there to buy someone's spot in line. To the first person, Dinnerstein says, the woman offered $50. And the person said no. So she increased her offer to $100. And the person said no. So she went down the line, making the same offer to everyone. And nobody took her $100. Now this is a great New Orleans story. And like all great New Orleans stories, it doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it actually happened. The facts here have never counted for much. It just matters if it's a story worth believing. It's something to think about anyway, while waiting in line for fried chicken, deep inside a neighborhood that flooded once a long time ago. Hurricane Katrina lingers beneath so many aspects of life in this city. It's behind the pastel rainbow of new houses where the projects used to be. It's in the line of tourists around the block at Willie Mays, in the stories that spill out from residents young and old with only the slightest bit of prompting. It's behind the 100,000 fewer African Americans in this city. It's in the rise of the New Orleanian taco truck and the massive popularity of Bacchanal's backyard. 
There's always a desire when these anniversaries roll around to make some assessment of a city's recovery, declare things better or worse. And as with so many things, it's never that simple. But New Orleans does continue on, the wildly imperfect place it is, and has been. Music for this episode was entirely from New Orleanian musicians. They included Helen Gillet, Alan Toussaint, Rebirth Brass Band, Tom McDermott, Los Poboisitos, Harmonouche, Galactic, The Gators, Tremé Brass Band, The Magnificent Sevenths, Eddie Bow, The Meters, and that's the Free Agents Brass Band right there. Our theme is by Wendell Patrick. Thanks as always to Sarah Camp Milam for the editorial help. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... Though they once worked to rebuild a restaurant, the Southern Foodways Alliance isn't in the construction business. The SFA is much better at documentary work, like filmmaking. And they had Joe York make a film about the rebuilding of Willie Mae's Scotch House. You can find it on southernfoodways.org. You'll hear restaurant regulars share stories of what Willie Mae's means to them and to the neighborhood. You'll meet volunteers at work, cleaning and hammering and painting. You'll get to know John Currents, who led those teams of volunteers and worked mightily on his own to reconstruct Willie Mays. And you'll glimpse the future of the restaurant, as Carrie Seaton Stewart, Willie Mays' great-granddaughter, steps into the kitchen and claims the fry baskets as her own. After you watch online, become a member. Members make SFA films and this podcast possible. You can learn more at southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a young man comes out to his Texan father as a vegetarian. When you say vegetarian, I think of somebody that's skinny, somebody that's a little eccentric. That's next time. If you're digging Gravy, do us a big favor. Go on iTunes and review us. That'll give us a much appreciated boost in listeners. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>